0: All right, I think we're going to get started. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's complimentary educational webinar, Taking Customer Due Diligence to the Next Level. This is going to be presented by Kay Cruz and Anthony Barr of Strategex. My name is John Polis, and I will be your webinar moderator today. I am the Chief Operating and Technology Officer for your webinar host, Star Mountain Capital. We are a specialized asset management firm focused On investing in the large and underserved US lower middle market of companies with typically under 15 million of EBITDA. Star Mountain's differentiated business model includes a custom-built media and technology platform bringing proven large market resources to smaller businesses as a value-added lender and investment partner. Before I hand over the reins to Kay and Anthony, I did want to let you know that your audio is muted and will be for the entirety of this presentation. Also, we have allocated time at the end of the presentation for Q&A. If you have a question, you can type it into the Q&A chat box of your WebEx client. We will try to get as many questions as possible before the hour is up. Now, about our presenters. Kay Cruz serves as Voice of the Customer Vice President for Strategex. With nearly 20 years of client engagement and strategic marketing experience, K provides strategic marketing leadership to the voice of the customer practice with a background in customer research, market strategy, brand development, and strategic opportunities. Anthony Barr is a vice president in Strategics' voice of the customer strategic practice, where he leads research-based consulting engagements. Anthony works in partnerships with clients to design and implement research initiatives to address common questions that arise during due diligence. Kane Anthony, we're very excited to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, John, and thanks everyone for taking time to join us today. Really quickly, just a brief overview of who we are for context. We are a research-based consulting firm in Chicago that specializes in the voice of the customer or VOC methodology. The firm was established in 93, and since then we've done over 700 of these VOC engagements. Mix of domestic and international work, um, industry agnostic, with the common thread being everything that we touch is B2B. And just to give you a sense of scale, last year we did just shy of 4,000 interviews, and this year we're on track to probably do over 5,000 customer interviews. Today, the agenda is really to talk about why we should consider doing customer diligence, either on the buy side or the sell side, how to do it well, and then demonstrate what the value add is of doing this, and we'll demonstrate that through the three case studies that we have for you. And then a, a few minutes blocked off at the end for Q and A. Q&A. To kick things off, a stat that I'm sure we've all seen—the notorious Harvard Business Review finding that up to 90% of deals fail to meet expectations. But I think what's really interesting is that we don't always ask ourselves the next intuitive question, which is why. Why are failure rates so high? You know, we, we often hear integration, but what does that mean? And more importantly, what can we do to mitigate the risks that are known contributors of deal failure? In B2B, we know that customer retention is essential to a successful deal. We know we know we've seen it time and time again, especially in situations where there's a customer concentrate, a concentrated customer base that a top account that is lost or that lower share of wallet is quite often one of the primary indicators of a dealer that is at risk. But how many times have we received SIMS or been part of rating a Sim that says, hey, potential buyer, one of our top accounts is at risk? Right? That, that never happens. Often we're, we're we're gloating about how strong our customer relationships are, how our market share is expanding how margins are improving, how there's really no competitive threats and how there's no foreseeable disruptions. But in reality, we know that quite often in B2B transactions, top customers do leave, top customers do lower their spend, which has a material impact on the valuation of the deal. So then when that reality sets in post-close, we often see price concessions are made, We see competitors come in, become more aggressive, trying to peel off our customers that are at risk. New innovations, new offerings don't quite take off. And the result is what we've all seen. Revenue falls short of expectations, which leads to margin compression, which means EBITDA falls behind projections. Now, what we just ran through was sort of a, a situation from the buy side, but I think it's also worth noting that this is equally as powerful on the sell side. You can do this leading up to sale, and we have a case study later on to demonstrate how this works. But when we go through this, we're not not picking just on buy-side diligence. We also see value in doing this leading up to sale as well. So if you buy into the premise that customer retention, customer concentration, margin compression, these are all risk factors, then we have to ask ourselves, does our due diligence uncover the red flags that can lead to situations like this? Does the due diligence we're doing today answer the question, how loyal are our top customers? Does it tell us what our competitive advantages and weaknesses are? Does it tell us what our future growth outlook looks like and how we can adapt new innovations? Odds are the answer to that is no. And if you say no, you're not alone, because we also find that McKinsey the that 40% of due diligence is often considered inadequate, right? We're not always answering the questions that we need to answer. We're not always mitigating those risks that we know contribute to failed deals. And I think part of the reason for that is that most of the customer diligence that's being done today is pretty limited, right? We're reviewing contracts. We might have a panel of experts we reach out to. We may even go so far as engaging directly with customers, but when we do, It tends to be short and cursory reference checks that are done internally without third-party validation. And we see that a lot of this work is done through online surveys, which we can have a whole webinar on the pitfalls of online surveys, but we know the response rates are very low, the quality of the data is questionable, and we're not really getting the qualitative insight that we need to address the objectives. So we think there's a better way of conducting customer diligence, and Kay's gonna walk us through what that looks like?
2: So when we look at best practice for customer diligence, uh, we start with the basis of what do we really where do we start? And typically most of the most of the groups that we work with start with some kind of commercial due diligence. The market sizing approach uh, tends to look at basically the growth of the category. Uh, might look at some industry trends or category trends. It might deal with who are the competitors and how much how much influence do they have. As Anthony mentioned, there may be a few customer insights, um, but as a general rule, most of that custom commercial due diligence is driven by secondary research that's pulled together from large reports, large, large customer concentration studies that have been done by uh, industry research experts. So when we look at customer due diligence as a separate animal, um, basically what we're able to do, again through a third-party validation, is really try to identify the strength of the relationship. Are there any accounts at risk? In other words, are they going to be stable? Uh, Look at what customers would expect relative to how do we retain those customers? What what does the account have to do? What does the target company have to do to make sure those, those customers stay with us? What's the share of wallet? Uh, importantly, how does, the, how does the company rank? What is their growth outlook? So, in essence, what we do is we pay kind of do the old Venn drawing here. We try to look at insights that will drive and make the commercial diligence better, things that the commercial diligence alone can't really uncover and can't really identify. So, when we look at best practices, how do we do it? Uh, Certainly from the standpoint of interviewing, we do one-on-one interviews, phone interviews, uh, that are relatively lengthy in their their content. We position it as a customer satisfaction uh, study. There is never any mention of a pending deal. So, again, we ask that the seller sponsors the fact that they have hired us to do this study on their behalf so that we can end up having engaging phone conversations with their customers. Engaging conversations that will last anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes on up to 30. Uh, We don't do and don't recommend static web surveys because we find that the the web survey results uh, are are reaching into the single digits and and lower. So, we want to look at both, importantly, the qualitative questions, what do we need to be finding out, but we also want to put in... How do we quantify those qualitative issues? We want to do some very, very deep probing and understanding what's going on. Now, in the diligence world, there's a fast track. We know the general rule, Company and buyer and seller have to get pretty comfortable with one another, certainly from the financial standpoint, the legal standpoint. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we better start looking at the at the customer side. So we want to make sure that we have a very accelerated timeline. Traditionally, we're in that last portion of the relationship building. We're right before deal closed to make sure that, in fact, it is going to be a good deal to close. So we have a very accelerated timeline that we're able to produce. Uh, this kind of work, generally speaking, about a – Three to four week time period. If it has to be done faster than that, certainly we can. But who do we interview? All right, make sure that we have the right number of interviews. Again, we want to look at more so that we can start seeing a common theme. If we're studying four or five, six interviews, everybody's going to worry and pour over every single portion of that interview and wonder if this is representative of the whole. So we want to apply what we call the 80 20 rule. Everybody knows it. 20% of your customers are driving 80% of your revenue, or in some cases, if there's heavy concentration, as Anthony said, we better make sure we understand what that customer relationship is really like. We we say let's look at those who have a greater amount of, of revenue from you because they will know you well. They are gonna be able to understand what you do well and where your areas of improvement, and importantly, those are the ones we have to make sure we retain after close. How many contacts do we talk to at each customer? A lot of it depends on the business model. Uh, Certainly at top customers, we want to talk to multiple people because a lot of people are involved in the decision. Could be procurement, could be design engineering, it could be ownership. Uh, Who is really trying to, to control that relationship and make sure that vendor stays in place, that company stays in place? So this helps us get a more holistic view of the relationship. We don't want to talk to just one role versus another. We want to make sure we get kind of an overview. Uh, we want to make sure that the sellers aren't biasing the, the, the list. In other words, they are only letting us speak to the customers that, that love them a lot. Uh, we want to make sure that we ask them to provide a good range of customers so that we can look at what's going on, certainly balancing off the, the, the amount of revenue that each one is supplying to us. And we want to look at other stakeholders. Uh, for instance, if there are some lost customers or if there are some prospects. Uh, companies that uh, com- customers that have had exposure to the target company, but for whatever reason haven't quite purchased yet. Uh, that's a good audience to try to understand what are they doing, what do we need to tr- try to help them move over to the our side of the equation. So, what do we ask? Um, obviously, we're going to look at customer loyalty. We're going to look at pricing, risk and opportunities. We generally would say, if you're you're talking to a procurement person, of course, they're going to tell you that you need to lower your price. But we oftentimes will turn that question around on its head and say, what do we need to do in order to justify the premium price that we're asking? What value does the company need to provide in order to make sure that their pricing can remain where they would prefer to have it? Competitive benchmarking, very important. What do we do well? What do our competitors do well? Uh, Customers of a target company are very willing to share that information with a third party, probably not as willing to share it with the actual seller himself or herself. Uh, Looking at certainly market trends, unmet needs, certainly looking at innovation. Where are there other opportunities going forward? The value of this particular kind of conversation lets us dig deeper into the relationship to understand what do we need to do to become a better partner? What do we need to do to help you grow your business so that we in turn grow ourselves? And certainly looking for prioritizing these areas of improvement that we'd want to have. So, how do we do it? We measure it with a net promoter score. I guarantee every single one of us that's on this conference line today has experienced the Net Promoter Score. On a scale of zero to ten, how likely would you to be to recommend this company to a friend or a colleague? In the customer, in the consumer world, it's starting to get kind of weak. Uh, we generally find that no one is going to answer it unless you've absolutely surprised and delighted the consumer beyond all belief, and maybe they'll give you a nine or a ten, or maybe an eight. Um, pretty rare, hard to get custom consumers to respond. And um, conversely, if they have had a hateful experience, absolutely positively they're going to respond right away. Sloan tells us, as well as a lot of other uh, research, that satisfaction drives loyalty, loyalty drives market share. We know that customers are going to be willing to buy from a B2B customer more, more frequently if you make their life easier. AKA satisfaction and loyalty, certainly from that standpoint. So we calculate it, a lot of us have experienced it, but we never know how you do it. We take the percent of people that give us nines and tens, and we subtract the percent of people that give us six and below. And of course, everybody says, well, wait, 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 eight's a good score, seven's pretty decent. What's going on? Why don't we count those? Well, we don't count those because in essence, they're somewhat satisfied, but not necessarily loyal. They tend to want to try to shop around, particularly if there's some issues. Promoters are very peop- well, the, the individuals within your customer base who are extremely loyal. They are repeat purchasers. They're easier for you to service because they likely would recommend you to others. They're willing to pay a little more because you make their life easier. Conversely on the flip side of the, of the table, the detractors, uh, a lot of negative word of mouth. Difficult to service. Always unhappy. Uh, certainly presenting a very high risk of leaving. Oftentimes we'll ask, well, should we talk to lost customers? If you have customers that we're interviewing that are giving you a two or a one or a zero, they're virtually out the door. They're ready to jump ship as soon as they possibly can. So what do we do with these scores? How do you gauge whether you've got a decent score or not? And importantly, in our world, in the B2B world, we generally will say if you have a 35% net promoter score or above, you probably are gaining share you're growing probably two to three times faster than your industry peers. Somewhere in the range of 15 to 35, kind of maintaining. Basically, you're gaining an account and perhaps losing an account, uh, certainly from that standpoint. But when we look at less than 15, um, obviously we find that your detractors are two times as likely to lose. Um, Certainly from our standpoint, when we look at high net promoter scoring companies, certainly they can sustain a a price premium value. So net promoter scoring, though, is one element. It's not an end-all to be-all. It's a benchmarking tool that we use, importantly, to balance off what we call a triangulated approach. Yes, we look at net promoter scores, but if you're only measuring a net promoter score, you're losing a lot of valuable information. We want to understand the customer experience. What do they love about you? Where are the areas of improvement? We want to benchmark that on a scale as well. We want to look at how you compare competitively. What are the issues going on from a competitive standpoint? Um, how do you perform versus your competitors? Where do you lead and where do you where do you lag? Where do customers excel? Where we should actually be emulating some of that uh, some of that uh, critical uh, characteristics or behavior. So that triangulation basically enables us to come up with a very effective way to distill all of our results. We look at the findings, tie those to the objectives, we basically ladder the findings into some insights, make recommendations, and certainly back it up with customer commentary. We arrive at conclusions based on what we're seeing quantitatively from customers. That's a number, that's a value. But in order to find that's basically the one side of the brain that's going to be very logical. We want to build in the emotional side. We want to use quotes that will help the target company understand that these are not just some pie in the sky analytical um, reasons to why customers are saying what they're saying. We want to provide those direct quotes so that they can see it. We provide a separate presentation first to the buyer before the deal closed. And once the deal closes, we provide a a combined buyer and us presenting to, in essence, the seller. This starts the beginning of the strategic planning process because this work can provide a great deal of insight into the first strategic plan that both the acquirer and the now newly acquired company uh, advance going forward. So how do you look at the findings and how do you analyze them? Certainly from the standpoint of looking at, for instance, the net promoter scores. In this case, we've run a series of scores that this company has done with us over the course of uh, basically six years. When we include all of the new acquisition respondents that they have acquired, we find that in reality our score goes up quite a bit. What that means to us from this standpoint is that the acquisition is a good add-on because it makes the acquiring company much stronger. We also are able to look at what we define as accounts that are at risk. What's the loyalty rating and how secure is the relationship? We do that by looking at what's the tone of their commentary. Um, This certainly is giving an 8.0% rating, but the account is at risk because they have trailing technology and they expect the spend to be down. Um, They're not being compliant with certain regulations that need to occur. So, again, looking at the insights provided through the customer relationships, of course, there you see the one, one Uh Certainly from the standpoint, the spend is going to be pretty flat or it's going to be out the door. So, again, this is how you do some of the analytical work. Importantly, when we look at comparing them to the competition, how do they compare? Are they much better, slightly better, equal, or slightly worse? We can see that our famous company, Acme, is, is certainly an industry leader, but there's also a certain degree of parity in the marketplace. So we know they they can do much more. If you look at the lighting solution side, they need to be doing quite a bit more in that particular um, market segment that they're in. Looking at strengths and areas of improvement, this is one way to do it. And you're going to say, well, wait, time out, time out, you got customer service is, is great. And customer service is also an area of improvement. Not at all uncommon for us to hear that from customers uh, of the target company. But what we look at is what's the drag? In this case, customer service only has a little bit of drag compared to 91% of the commentary that said customer service was outstanding. Where we do see some issues, here are the issues. The portfolio, look at the huge drag on the portfolio. This particular company was not keeping up with innovation and they were not keeping up with making the market aware of what they actually were doing. Therefore, their price was beginning to be compressed. This was an LED client, and in essence, what we were learning was the LED market had gone from being a very, very expensive market to now it was quite commoditized, and the company had not kept up by building and innovating a stronger portfolio. So, in essence, we can start to see that just in, in this particular um, chart. So. Thoughtful interviews certainly do add value post-close. Importantly, lets us look at what do we need to do to retain at-risk accounts. Are there things that we should address right away? We want to look at growing share of wallets. We can look at, for instance, we can see where we have a high net promoter scoring company yet the share of wallet is less than 25%. Why is that? We need to make sure we understand what do we need to do in order to make that customer a better buyer of sharing wallet with us. Look at the value proposition. What are the things that we need to improve on? How can we optimize pricing? And certainly looking at developing an innovation pipeline based on the market needs, because we ask very specifically, what unmet needs do you have that this company can, in essence, fulfill? So what do we do for
1: post-close?
2: Basically, starts the strat plan. So we'll do a couple of case studies now, and Anthony will lead off.
1: All right. So the methodology that we use, voice of the customer. You know, we've been talking a lot about that value it adds in the diligence phase, but it's also a pretty effective management tool throughout the duration of the holding period. So what often happens is we do a customer diligence baseline project. With holding periods being, you know, five, six years now, that means we have an opportunity to touch base with consumers a few times during the holding periods to really make sure we are enhancing the strength of customer relationships, so that when it comes time to go to market on the sell side, not only do we have a compelling financial story to tell, we can validate that with a compelling customer story. So the three case studies we have lined up kind of follow that linear process. And the first one that we're going to start with is a situation where it was a a buy-side diligence project where there was a high degree of customer concentration. The the seller was an industrial plastic manufacturer, and they had about 20 customers that generated 90% of their revenue. Given that high degree of concentration, our private equity client naturally wanted to validate the stability of those relationships. And what we ended up finding, particularly through the Net Promoter Score, was that their NPS was positive 14, which if you recall the ranges that Kay provided earlier is typically indicative of a company that is losing share. Right, because we know to get a a plus 14, that means you have a fair amount of, of detractors. Detractors are often twice as likely to leave as a promoter. So given that the Net Promoter Score was was pretty low and there were some fundamental issues with the customer experience, a lot of late deliveries, poor customer service, and we didn't hold a preference in the marketplace. When we benchmarked ourselves against competitors, we found that we were often third or fourth or fifth. There were, there were quite a few other players that were preferred by, by customers. So with all these things taken into consideration, the Net Promoter Score, the customer experience, competitive benchmarking, that triangulated approach that we showed you, the, the results actually impacted the buyer's decision and the offer for the target was withdrawn. And what we see over on the right at the top is one of the quotes from one of the actual customers we interviewed. There's nothing I like about them. Our current plan that is in two years or about, our volume is going to start going down. Right? This is what I was talking about earlier, is how often do we see a quote like that in a sim? Not that often. How often do we see this in reality? More often than we might think. And the impact, as you see in the lower right, quote directly from our client based on a post-project interview, was that we ended up saving about $400 million and maybe more importantly, a lot of headaches. But I think it's worth noting that, you know, we can come across a situation where we identify a lot of the accounts are at risk, and the deal still goes through because the approach is not just diagnostic, right? You're not just getting a score. You're getting qualitative insights to improve those scores over time. So even in situations where we have a a negative net promoter score, for example, um, we may see the deal still go through because we're, we're able to develop retention strategies to make sure that those accounts stick around. Okay, we'll take the second case study.
2: Okay, the innovation roadmap. Um, Obviously, everybody says, you know, the the best way for us to to really make this company acquisition work is we're going to go through and do a lot of operational improvements right from the get-go, but that will only get us so far. Importantly, we know that in order to get a really strong growth trajectory, you have to look at what else can we be doing, where do we need to go from an innovation standpoint. So this particular one was done basically using customer insights. We can identify, for instance, if there are gaps in the offering, or are there any specifically unmet needs, or are there pain points, things that the industry is struggling with. Um, Again, we talked about what competitors were doing better. Oftentimes, we'll hear, you know, this is a great little company, but if I'm getting a new go-to project, they're not my go-to supplier. Uh, Another competitor is because I know they're more innovative. So we want to look at are there any industry trends that are impacting how how much innovation can or should be done. Certainly, we're going to validate, importantly, We always know engineers have a great pipeline of these are the next best ideas that our customers are going to want. And partly what we have to do is look at are they relevant to customers? Are they really, in fact, the next best ideas that customers would find most appealing? Oftentimes, we will stress test several different ideas only to find out that two of the four are going to win and the others we shouldn't be paying any attention to because it's just not going to find the, a reasonable market to, to identify. And looking importantly at some pricing strategies for innovation, how far can we stretch? So this particular case study, we started with a, a global manufacturer of specialty chemicals. They had invested quite heavily in research and, and development for new, projects, uh, for new products. But in essence, once they were in the market, there was very little demand. They had a lot of commodity products, but there were very few new products that were in the, in the offing that they felt they could make sticks. So the challenge was, are we going to go forward, or do we need to try to cut R&D funding based on the category? We're, we're commoditized. There's nothing we can do that will shake these people out of what they're buying. So we went into an entirely different approach, talking to their customers about new product offerings, rating them on how they viewed themselves as being innovators. So were the customers were the customers of the client viewed as innovators? How many engineers did they have on staff that were dedicated to innovation? Um, how many new projects did they have going forward? And in essence, we found that 16 of the top 34 accounts considered themselves to be innovators. And they wanted a supplier that would innovate with them. Well, we were a supplier, but they didn't think of us as being innovative. So in essence, they were saying, we, we are innovating, but it's not relevant to us. So what we ended up looking at and identifying, there were over 200 customer-submitted innovation opportunities that we were able to identify, to go back to our client and say, These are innovators. They want to co-partner and co-develop with you on over two, basically over 200 different initiatives. So it became important for our client to prioritize which ones did they feel would commercialize best, but they already had a partner towards that commercialization effort. So in essence, they were able to turn around and say, no, we do need to increase the R&D budget, and we do need to really dedicate ourselves to co-creation programs with our key partners, with our top accounts, because they view us as a partner and they want us to innovate along with them. So pretty remarkable and you can see their net promoter score was strong, 46%. So even though they weren't viewed as being an innovator, they were certainly indicative of one that was a partner, one that was gaining share. And the last case study we'll share with you is basically what we call the sell-side go-to-market. Uh, this was a company that, that said, you know, in essence, we want to get ready to sell this company, so we're going to do uh, a customer satisfaction study to understand what opportunities are out there for us. How strong are these relationships? So this was all in preparation for getting the company ready to be sold to the next to the next buyer. So we know that sell-side diligence basically is a European model. Uh, much as as legal diligence and much as uh, quality of earning diligence started on the other side of the pond, so too has sell-side diligence from a customer standpoint. Uh, it's done more frequently than not. Uh, basically, it's to try, to try to determine, is this the right time to sell? Uh, can we attract buyers and help persuade buyers that we have, a, in essence, a good, a good product, a good company to be able to buy? It helps us control the message as opposed to having them look at us Uh, from a buy standpoint. In essence, we're able to see what's going on. If there are some issues, it gives us the opportunity to kind of tweak those and control those over the course of the next 12 to 14 to 18 months before we really are ready to buy uh, or to sell. Uh, Importantly, we want to look at, is there a runway for future growth? And certainly, again, we want to try to accelerate that timeline. We want to take a snapshot to see what's going on. In this case for us, in the case study, the manufacturer and distributor of industrial carpet. Now, look in the top right hand corner. Net promoter scores off the chart, instead at a plus eighty. Certainly gaining share. One of the things that the PE client was looking at was it's time to sell. We think we've gone about as far as we can go with this, but we also want to make sure that we leave enough on the table that the next buyer will feel that it's, it's a it's a strong it's a strong company to buy. Uh, certainly from the standpoint of Another private equity group was interested, but they felt the value was too high. So how are we going to try to justify the value multiples that we're looking for? So certainly from our standpoint, we looked at the Net Promoter Score and said, wow, this is a plus 80 company, uh, certainly strong. They have great fundamentals, performance numbers on their fundamentals, quality, on-time delivery, all of those issues, uh, technical support, customer support, all of those were high-rated high numbers. Uh, there were a few quality issues, but certainly nothing that was off the chart, uh, and certainly from the standpoint of one of the things that we wanted to look at was what's the next runway? What else do they have to enable them to grow? We basically had isolated a number of, of new products. Basically there were about four new products on the, on the drawing board, and we validated. Two were off the the chart wins. Absolutely, positively, they were going to excel. A third was, uh, yeah, it's interesting, but the other two are much, much better. And the fourth was, uh uh-uh, not not going to make it, just not very interested in it. Uh, What we ended up being able to provide was that, yes, there was runway, and yes, importantly, um, it was worth the price. So the validation was, was documented. And as a result of the findings, both the buyer and the seller became comfortable with the validation, became comfortable with the multiples that they were willing to pay. Importantly, we checked in basically about a year later. Uh, The buyer is extraordinarily happy. The numbers are still going up. Uh, The new product sales are advancing. And importantly, this was a win-win on both sides of the equation, which is exactly what you want to have when you're starting to do a go-to-market kind of planning strategy for companies that need to move out of your portfolio and go to the next, uh, to the next buyer. So with that, we'll open it up to some
0: questions. All right, great. That was a fantastic presentation. Uh- Okay, Anthony. We really appreciate that. We we have a uh, we have a couple of uh, we have a couple of uh, interesting questions. Uh, I think some of them will will extend out. So the uh, the first question we have is: Don't many sellers consider customer access to be mostly opening negative information? What if they won't support the customer satisfaction approach?
2: Um, one of the things that we, we balance out is we're going to look for uh, strengths as much as areas of improvement. We want to, in essence, we want to document um, what is going well with the company um, so that we know that we've got a justifiable reason behind the asking price, paying the asking price. So, in essence, because this is a satisfaction study done on behalf of the target company, we will always say we're going to leave these results ultimately in your hands because this is a way for you to help your company grow. Uh, if, there are, if there are concerns, for instance, if they say, oh, no, you're not going to talk to any of our customers at all, that's a red flag mm-hmm. that says uh, something's going on here. Uh, why can't we talk to some of the customers, particularly if the seller is the sponsor of the study, a.k.a. letting the customers know that they've asked us to do this on their behalf. Not that they're paying for it. That always is usually on the buy side. But certainly from the standpoint of saying, we want you to talk to our customers to understand what we're doing well and where are their areas of improvement. So we try to balance it out.
1: Yeah. And we get, you know, it's interesting, even if sellers don't necessarily want us to talk to their customers, their customers certainly want to talk to them. Right, we get about a 75 80% response rate. So customers are, are eager to share their feedback because they know it's in their vested interest, right? The, the, the hope is that they're going to take time out of their day to share feedback on how their experience can be improved. So even if there's hesitation on the seller's part, you know, I don't want to bother my customers, I, you know, I don't want to have one more touch point with them, this is one of those instances where they're often happy to do it uh, because they want to give us that feedback.
0: Sure. So, so in general, how is this methodology, your voice of the customer methodology, different from other types of methodologies and market research?
1: So, I think we're, a lot of what we see from a customer perspective is done with web surveys. And we, we touched on this earlier, you know, web surveys, the response rates are now in the single digits, you know, 10% if you're lucky. But then more concerningly, when you're doing web surveys, you have to ask yourself who's actually responding. And it tends to be the ones, kind of as Kay alluded to, that are really, really happy with you or really, really upset with you. So you get a very polarized set of feedback. You're not getting a a well-rounded, holistic sense of the customer relationship. The other pitfall is that they tend to be very heavy on quantitative findings, which are helpful. right? We, we certainly need statistics. We certainly need empirical measurements to give us a sense of where we stand today. But when doing this type of work, where it's not just about knowing where we are but how we can move forward, that's where we tend to find qualitative insights, lend just as much if not more value. And you just don't get that with web surveys. You know, You can, you can have people respond to an open end, but you'll get one or two sentences at most when you're having a dynamic phone conversation and you pose a question, you know, customers can, can talk for for five or ten minutes on a single topic. So I think it's the response rate combined with just the higher quality insights.
2: Yeah. Only other element to add to that is when we are, for instance, when we are doing the interviewing as a third party and we're not mentioning the transaction, that gives us kind of a level playing field of understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. If the if the private equity firm or the or the buyer is doing the interviewing, they pretty much have to reveal that there's a transaction. Um, obviously, just, just from the standpoint of their methodology. Uh, that transaction can be, the fact that it's known now to the interviewee can taint the deal. We've had one situation, for instance, where the company that was the acquirer went out and talked to all of the top com- customers and literally, after they closed, because it looked like everything was perfect, that one of the largest customers said, okay, now that you're here, I want a price concession. And, of course, the acquirer said, whoa, 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 you didn't mention any of that when we were talking. And they said, well, of course not. You've got deep pockets. They don't. Now that you're here, I want a price concession. So the value of their deal went south dramatically because they had to make that price concession because it was the number one largest customer with a lot of concentration. So that's kind of the, the, what we always call the, the balancing point of why this is a good idea to do with a third party. We can get into that insight because we're gonna ask more questions and never mention a transaction, which gives us the ability to, to triangulate around what's going on with the relationship.
0: So, so, how do you convince or or how yeah, how do you convince the sellers to um, allow customers to have third parties contact them, and then how do you make sure that the sellers doesn't give you customers that are only going to talk well about them?
1: Yeah, so a crucial step in the process is to have seller buy-in from the beginning and also to have the research from the perspective of the customer be sponsored by the seller. And one of the best practices we have for doing this is prior to researchers getting on the phone and calling on a customer, that customer first receives an email from someone senior at the seller organization saying, hey, we're doing a customer satisfaction study. We're simply trying to find ways to better serve you. So this gets, gets back to what we were saying earlier where it becomes a mutually beneficial process. The customer gives us time, seller gets feedback that's valuable whether or not the deal goes through. If it helps reinforce QOV e and other diligence and it gives acquirers peace of mind to close, great. If it doesn't, it still adds value to the seller because it gives them a nice set of account-level plans to improve relationships going forward. And, you know, next time they put themselves up for sale, it might, might be a more optimistic picture.
2: We um, often will encourage that you put it in your LOI. Uh, as a, as an element, that it's, it's there from the very, very beginning. It's known that it will occur only after a lot of other diligence has been done so that everybody's comfortable with one another. We find the best cases are usually where buyer and seller have been around the table enough, and yeah, it's always drinking from a fire hose, but they've gotten to know one another. And there's a feeling of a certain degree of trust at that point, a certain degree of protection relative to the customers. Certainly we're going to say, hey, we know customer relationships are your most important assets. There's nothing we're going to do to screw those up. Uh, we also know that the exposure of customer satisfaction and the relevance of the customer experience these days is getting a lot more press in the business-to-business world. So this becomes kind of a natural add-on to say the best companies are doing this level of work in order to improve customer relationships. So that feels pretty natural to customers. So, again, mm-hmm. we do it so that there's no threat.
1: And then to the, to the second part of the question, how do we ensure that, you know, sellers aren't stacking the deck and just giving us customers that they know will be favorable? You know, I think the, the approach that Kay outlined where, you know, we, it really eliminates bias because we're saying, don't give us a random sampling of customers because it may not be random. We say, apply that 80-20 rule, let's interview top accounts, Within top accounts, let's only talk to people who we know are influencing or making the ultimate decision about which suppliers to use. So we're really narrowing it down to a pretty narrow target. And if the feedback is all great, we know it's great because it's great among top accounts and it's great among people who are making the decision about whether or not they use us. If it's not so great, mm-hmm. Again, the bias isn't there because we know the feedback is coming from the hearts and minds of, of those who are choosing whether they go with us or whether they go with a competitor.
0: So, so, when you're contacting when you're contacting customers, uh, what, what what do you what do you articulate as the purpose of the study being just just to just to gather information uh, to for the client so that they can do a better so that they can be better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone. I mean, I think almost everyone, especially in the B2B world, is used to getting those. You know, after a flight or after a hotel, you get those emails saying, "Hey, take this survey." So customers are absolutely attuned to and comfortable with being reached out to to provide feedback. And we take a very similar approach. We just ask for more of their time. So we say, you know, give us 30 minutes, have a conversation with us. If you want to be anonymous, you can, but if you choose to put your name behind your comments, someone will follow up with you and tell you what they're going to do to address your concerns, improve your experience. So it really is kind of a closed loop where we get the feedback, we distill it, we make recommendations, we hand it over to a portfolio company or or seller, whatever the case may be. They implement those findings and they have follow-up conversations with the customers. So it's a continuous improvement process where the whole Mechanism is being driven by this desire to improve the customer experience.
0: What about? And I think it's something that
1: that customers, you know, they buy into that. They get that. And I think they appreciate it too.
0: Right, right. Well, what what about companies that have, you know, just a few top accounts? You know, doesn't does the the size of the sample? How how, how important is that?
1: Yeah, and I think that that kind of dovetails to another question that, you know, for those at leaner platforms who often have to do this internally, I think that that lends to that question, too, because we often hear, well, there's only two or three top accounts, I don't need to do this, or I can do it internally. And we would actually argue in instances where there are only two or or three top accounts, those are the cases where there is the most customer concentration. It might not be the 80-20 rule, it might be the 95-5 rule. So it becomes even more important to validate those relationships in instances where everything may be riding on one or two customers.
2: The, uh, the other important element to say is when you when you are doing it internally, uh, we've had private equity companies that say, well, we, we do these calls all the time, we used to. And when they listen in to the variation of the interview that our researchers are able to conduct versus what they conduct, uh, they say, wow. There is a methodology behind how you conduct an effective, ongoing, engaging conversation. Now, importantly, from our standpoint, one of the things that we find is if you are going to do it internally, you've got to take the next step. You've got to be able to document, importantly, what you really heard, not what you think you heard or what you wanted to hear. And that's what we find is most often the case with people who are not trained to be interviewers and researchers. They tend to hear only the things that they want to hear, not necessarily the things that the customer is really saying. Now, that's one thing. The other element is to say you've got to do something with it. You can't just look at your notes. You have to be a little more analytical about your notes. You have to be able to put those down into some kind of categories so that you're not looking at what you think you see in essence, we might find a range of preliminary themes that everybody says, oh, these are all very common. And once we put it through the analytical sieve, we may come up with an entirely different animal. For instance, if you go back to that strength areas of improvement, 91% of the commentary had to deal with how great the company was, but yet there was a 21% drag on it, which meant there were still areas that the company needed to address. A non-trained, non-analytical person would be to say, "Oh, customer service is great. Check the box." Um, it, it takes it takes some it takes some expertise to dig through. What are you really seeing in your findings?
1: Yeah, and if, and if you're going to do it internally, don't just do it as case that of check the box. Don't just do it because an investment bank said you have to do it. Really, be opportunistic about it. Realize that customer feedback can help validate a deal, but a lot of the the, the applied insight happens post close when you can use their feedback to accelerate your value creation plan. So think longer term if you're going to do this internally.
2: Most of our clients also share um, the work either through the presentation itself, the AK being a part of the presentation or through at least the document. Uh, share it with their financial partners mm-hmm. so that in essence it starts to, to level out that the debt that we are the debt's going to be secure. Um, yes, this is going to be able to be paid off. It, it's going to work for all of us.
1: But then I'd also argue, would you have, would you do a quality of earnings internally? Just, just
0: saying. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So, so, you know, we all know that customer diligence is only a piece of diligence. So how how does this, A, fit into the broader, you know, due diligence strategy? And then, you know, in general, uh, can you give us some idea of how long customer diligence you know, based on the, uh, the, the, the way that you've outlined it takes as part of this as part of the diligence uh, um, process?
1: Yeah, so I think the way it interfaces with other diligence efforts are validation and to supplement. You know we we, we would never expect that we do this and this alone. We, we know Q of e is going to happen, we know on larger deals or when you're building out a platform that commercial will happen, legal, all those other things. So what we try and do is design our approach to complement everything else you're doing. So we're out to validate Q of E by saying, yes, there is future growth potential at these accounts and here's why. Right, we're out to validate contract diligence by saying these accounts intend to renew their contracts, their purchase intent is high. Uh, we're out to supplement commercial by saying, here's all this great category-level insight you have. Here's how it fits when we're talking specifically to your potential customers, right? So here's the competitive set across the industry. Here's the more narrow-down list of competitors for the target. Here are industry-wide trends. Here's what's really keeping customers up at night. So I I think that's the way we tend to complement the other methods that are being done.
2: And not at all uncommon for us to work side by side with a commercial diligence provider. In other words, letting them contribute to, okay, but we need the answers to this, 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 and this question. Can you give us some insight? Can you dig into that? Absolutely we can. Uh, Because we know we don't want the commercial diligence provider talking to the same people that we're talking to because that will do nothing but red flags all over the place. So we have to make sure that the customers are treated discreetly um, and that they're not they're not asked repetitively what's going on. You know, as Anthony said, one of the things that our Q of E people will tell us is that our interviews will add insight and validity to the earnings. Um, It basically not only says the historical earnings are secure, importantly it lets us look at future earnings Mm -hmm. to make sure the future earnings projection is is going to be solid and go forward.
1: Mm -hmm. I I think it's probably worth noting that while, you know, we are, supplementing and validating during the, the diligence window where customer diligence really stands alone as post-close. Because what other diligence are you getting that helps you with strategic planning for the first 100 days, six months post-close, right? This gives you really specific account-level feedback on, on precise actions we need to take to retain accounts, to grow accounts, to improve the experience. So it, 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 it's probably more forward-looking than a lot of other types of diligence that's being done
2: most of our um, buyer clients will tell us this was a great way to become intimate with the target company's customers in a very quick fashion quick mm-hmm. fashion to you know very efficient very quick again because they're looking at they're looking at those transcripts they're asking questions post-close if there are some red flag interviews It enables them to go to the the seller to say, tell us a little bit more about the color behind your relationship with company ABC. Um, And that lets the the seller be able to set the stage because clearly uh, some customer interviews are red flags and we just have to understand is that a true reading or not. That's why we encourage multiple interviews so that we know we're not looking at one one guy or gal that was having a particularly bad day, and that tainted the whole rest of the discussion.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, E-listening e- tools that help that tap into the voice into voice of the customer data. First of all, off, do, do you do you take advantage of them? Are they part of your process? And if so, you know, do they help you identify any insights? Um, how does that how does that work?
1: Yeah, in the in the consumer world, absolutely, that's a very powerful tool. In the B2B world, where the decision maker and the influencers that we're really looking to talk to, they're not, you know, they might be engaged with those platforms, but they're probably not expressing, you know, or or, or sharing content that we could use necessarily for insights. Uh-huh. Um, I think the, the the preferred approach is to just engage with them directly. Because it kind of goes back to the, you know, what we were saying earlier that the, the, I think the, the content you might scrape off e-listening, e-learning, um, tends to be, again, that polarizing feedback. It's the people that are going to take time out of their day to go and say something really positive about you or really negative. So it's not really representative of, of the total state of relationships
0: gotcha so so last last topic uh, and, th- and then we'll wrap up we're coming up on, on the hour and this has been fantastic you know here at Star Mountain we are we are um, we play place a huge focus on leadership and culture uh, what you know, based on what you've learned you know, what is the connection between leadership and culture in mergers and acquisitions
2: um, we find that we are able to one of the things that, that we're able to do with this work, particularly if it's a if it's an add-on or if it's a strategic acquirer, is we can identify culture, form, and fit. For instance, if your acquired company has a high level of love for the customer and the customer loves them, they're constantly focused on the customer experience, and yet your the company acquiring them does not then you know there's going to be a difference. For instance, we had one client who was a strategic acquirer who was buying a a really, really remarkable niche company. And they ended up saying to us as we were going through the presentation, so in essence you're telling us don't screw it up after we acquire it. And they said, well, yeah, I hate to say that, but yeah, that's true. And with that in mind, they took and he said, we are going to change our whole integration process and I want to put the integration team together for another presentation with you so they understand what we're doing because if we put this through our usual process, I guarantee we'd kill the company. So that's, that is great. that's great insight to be able to share with an acquirer to understand what's the culture fit, how much of a leading how much of a leading company are you acquiring from an industry leadership standpoint? What are the what What are you really getting here? What kind of gem are you getting? And with some of these smaller, you know, foundation, founder-owned businesses, you are buying great little gems. The question becomes, how do you not screw it up? And we are able to, to really probably probably give a good assessment for again that integration fit um, and cultural fit, culture fit.
1: Yeah, and I think that's especially true, you know, lower mid-market B2B companies where you have very long-standing accounts. Mm-hmm. They're long-standing for a reason, right? It, it, it tends to be the personal relationships. B- people do business with other people; they don't necessarily do business with companies. So it's, it, it's a case point. It's super critical to establish um, the the stability of that and make sure that we essentially aren't screwing it up.
0: Anthony K, it looks like uh, it looks like that our hour is uh, is coming to a close. Thank you very much. This was fantastic.
2: Thank you for letting us um, talk to the group. We really appreciate
0: it. Sure, uh, I'd like to thank everybody who signed in for the hour. And to let everybody know that within the next day or so, we will be emailing everybody a copy of the presen- of, uh, of Kay and Anthony's presentation, along with a link to a complete replay for this webinar. And should anyone have any further questions, you know, there's uh, Kay and Anthony's contact information. Uh, if they have any feedback about this webinar, please feel free to email them to us at webinars at starmountaincapital.com and please check our uh, our events page on starmountaincapital.com website for for future uh, for future webinars and podcasts. Anthony K, again thank you very much and uh, and hopefully we'll do this again soon. All right, thanks. Thank you all. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.